Well, if you take your Bibles with me, and I hope you have one, either open it up or turn it on or light it up, whatever it is you do. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. Matthew chapter 21. Today is Palm Sunday. I put it on, on my social media platforms. Today marks the greatest, I believe, eight days of human history. And we are going to remember those from this Sunday till the following Sunday, being eight full days. When we gather together next week, if God tarries, we will celebrate and remember Resurrection Sunday. But this is what kicks it off when you come to Matthew chapter 21. And this morning, I want you to think of the triumphal entry. And really what I want to ask you to think of or consider is the fact that the triumphal entry of Christ is the beginning of the hope for humanity. It's the beginning of the hope for humanity. So let's look at this passage of scripture as the converted tax collector inspired of God writes it in Matthew chapter 21, and this is how he records it for us. He says, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, and came to Bethpage to go to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, understand it says Lord there. It's a capital L, but it's only a capital L. It's not a capital L-O-R-D. I want you to take note of that. And notice it says the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Matthew wants you and I to realize this is not a random event. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he, Jesus, sat on them, and most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches or palm trees before him and that followed him, and they were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, and again, if you're writing in your Bibles, take note of this. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And may God have his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up in church. I did pretty well from the day I was born. And I don't know how many of you grew up in church hearing every Sunday about the triumphal entry of Christ and thought, especially when you were a kid or a teenager, wow, I don't get it. Jesus is popular. The people are crying out, Hosanna. This must be a really good day. And hence, we've even developed traditions in many churches, even today, some in this very city, We'll even start the service by having children come in with palm trees. This is a very common thing to have happen. And yet, we all sometimes get caught up in certain stories from the Bible and still get them a little confused. 
we don't always know. We know the tradition of it, but maybe we don't know how to put it in there. Or maybe we get a little confused because we start mixing up some of our Bible stories, like the Sunday school teacher who was teaching her class during one Easter, and she asked her students what they remembered about this great time of the year. The first little boy excited said it was the best because his whole family got together and had a big turkey and watched football all day. Of course, the teacher gently told the little boy that he had probably confused Easter with Thanksgiving or New Year's. A little girl put her, up, her hand up eagerly, and this time she said, Easter is the time when you come downstairs and discover all the presents under the tree. Now a little discouraged, the teacher explained that that was likely Christmas. Then one finally, one very brave little boy said, Easter, miss, is that time when Jesus was crucified and buried. Her spirits lifted as it seemed like at least one of her students knew what she was teaching about, but they were quickly dashed when the little guy continued. And when Jesus came out of the grave, he sees his shadow, and then there's six more weeks of winter. <laughs> the little boy only got it half right. And that's what I want to talk to all of us about. I want us to be honest on this April 10th of 2022. As we are gathered here in our church, for those of you that are gathered online and watching, is all too often what we do when it comes to the triumphal entry, and it is most definitely what the crowds gathered that day did as well, is they get it, and we often get it, half right. We know enough, as my grandfather used to say to me sometimes with tools, Stephen, you know enough to be dangerous. All right? Have you ever traced... The life and events of Jesus from the Sunday to the Sunday that surrounds what we call Easter. In fact, this Friday coming, we call it Good Friday. The next Sunday, a week from now, we call it Easter Sunday. And we'll look more closely at this very thing as, as Adam brings us right into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I take us right through the missional commissions of the resurrection. And I'm very excited to do it. But... From Sunday to Sunday, over the next eight days in the life of Jesus over 2,000 years ago, if you take the time to read it and study it, you will discover it is a collision of ups and downs, declarations and denials. There's loyalty and abandonment. Jesus is heralded one day, and then he'll be spit upon just days from now. He'll go from hero to villain, from savior, ready for this, to scapegoat. And herein lies the paradox. Because Jesus came with the full intention of actually being the scapegoat. Charles Simeon, the old Puritan preacher from the time of the reformers, a man of God, he once said this, During Passion Week, I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Day. And I was met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. And the thought came into my mind, what? You mean to tell me I can transfer all my guilt to another? Has God offered or provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? And then he writes, then God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. And accordingly, he writes, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. 
Calvary Baptist Church and all of you tuning in, I want you to realize this Palm Sunday, Jesus Christ is our, your scapegoat. This is the gospel. This is the good news. In Leviticus, that book that everybody wants to avoid and that I think some of the ladies have just been recently brave enough to try and study because it's a beautiful, beautiful book. On the Day of Atonement, the lamb was sacrificed for the sins of Israel, a nation. And another goat was then sent into the wilderness symbolically, taking the sins of Israel with it. Leviticus chapter 16 explains it all. God tells Moses and Aaron the high priest how to make atonement for sin for the whole people of Israel for one year. And this is what he says. And when he had made an end to atoning for the holy, for, for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar... He shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, and watch this, and all of their transgressions and all of their sins. I mean, this was really to pile it up, iniquities and transgressions and sins, and then what happens? And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And that was supposed to be a picture for the nation of Israel. Of someone that would come millennia later. God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, who would then, after living about 33 years, would become our sacrificial lamb and our scapegoat. He, Jesus, took your place and mine on the cross for our iniquities and transgressions, our sinfulness. But he also took those sins and covered them with his blood forever once and for all and this is what makes jesus so unique and set apart from every other philosophy or religion or outlook on life in the entire world in this day in hebrews the word is used once for all and this is what the preacher says for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And here's how he sums it up. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first. So what you read about in Leviticus chapter 16, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And what is he establishing in the second? And that by will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for this? Once for all. It is finished, Jesus will say next week on Good Friday. That... And that alone is the reason that Jesus entered Jerusalem on this day in Matthew chapter 21. It's the whole purpose. That's the rest of the story. And when you really look at this passage, you'll not only see that, but you'll see what Jesus intended 
juxtapositioned against what the crowd and the disciples and religious people thought was something altogether different. They got it half right. They were starting mixing their metaphors, mixing their traditions. They started mixing their way of looking at things. So I want us to dig into this passage and see what God has written to you and I, to us. We want to see what God has for us today. So number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to see this in the first few verses of Matthew chapter 21. Jesus' triumphal entry was not only miraculous, it was predicted. It wasn't a happenstance event. It wasn't, a, it wasn't karma. It wasn't Murphy's Law. It wasn't good luck. It wasn't happenstance. It was the triumphal entry was not only miraculous, it was predicted. When Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, look at what he says. Told his disciples, go into the village, and I want you to find a donkey and a colt and untie them. And if anyone asks you, now that sounds a bit bizarre until you read what Matthew says next. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now you need to know a little bit of the backstory here. You got to think about what has just happened, what they've seen. Only days earlier, a dead man named Lazarus, who had been dead and buried for four days, has been called to life. In recent weeks and months, blind men have received their sight, and not just any blind man, a man who was born blind has received his sight. Think of all they've already been a part of, from calmed storms to Jesus being a storm chaser, confronted religious leaders. Roman centurions who came to Jesus for help. Thousands upon thousands had been fed. fed. Even more had been healed. But remember, the whole time the disciples thought that Jesus was setting up the kingdom now. The crowds, they wanted a political deliverer. They wanted freedom from Rome. The religious didn't want Jesus at all because Jesus was a direct threat to Caesar. But back in a chapter earlier, Matthew chapter 20, as Jesus is leading his disciples, this is what Matthew tells us. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them on the way, see, we are going to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And here's what's going to happen. And they will condemn him to death. They're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles where he'll be mocked and flogged or whipped and then crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Now, unless you take the time to read through the book of Matthew, you'll not realize this. That's the third time Jesus had told his disciples this was going to happen. He had told them back in Matthew chapter 10, again in Matthew 16, and here in Matthew 20. He'll tell them again in Matthew chapter 26. And yet every step of the way, God's sovereign plan, Jesus took in obedience to his father. It seemed the disciples still didn't get it. They kept looking and longing for other things. They saw Jesus in terms of national Israel or political overthrow. And yes, they all had glimpses of their own personal problems, but it often got pushed aside for other things. Now, before we look down our long self-righteous nose at these often dim-witted disciples, I want to ask you and I something. How often do you and I do this? How often do you and I misunderstand? Or we want Jesus on our terms. 
or we want Jesus to do things according to our plan. Because that's borne out in what happens immediately following this declaration in Matthew chapter 20. In fact, if you realize it, the next thing that happens is James and John's mother come to Jesus and say, I want my sons to sit on your right hand and your left. And Jesus says, you don't have a clue what you're asking. It's in the midst of this confusion, this overall lack of getting it, while these guys are jockeying for position, they still think this is political. They still think this is about their lives and being eased in their temporal lives of now. That Jesus then looks at them and looks at two more of them and says, I want you to go into this little town and get me this colt. Why? Because the prophets had said this was supposed to happen. Matthew chapter 21 in our passage, Matthew quotes Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. But there are allusions to Zechariah chapter 14, and believe it or not, even Genesis 49. Now, I'll be honest, there's all kinds of debate among scholars about whether Jesus performed a miracle when he said, go into town, look for this donkey and her colt, and if anybody asks you, as if he was mind-controlling people and all this kind of stuff, and listen, you can have fun and fill your boots with what you think, because the, at the end of the matter, it doesn't matter. Here's what matters. Jesus is making sure to be obedient and fulfill what God had already said was going to happen. Matthew is the only one, by the way, who tells us there were two animals. That there was a donkey and her colt. And that's not a discrepancy between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was simply giving us more of the picture from his point of view. It's the best way, by the way, for any man to ride an unbroken colt. If mom is near, then the, the, the cult stays calm. And so that's why commentators tell us Jesus likely did that. He is deliberately coming into Jerusalem in front of everyone to confront the entire city of Jerusalem. Here I am. I am the Messiah. Now, what are you going to do with me? Now, keep note of that. Because notice what Matthew says in verse 3 when I was reading it. Look at what it says. He tells his disciples, if anybody asks you why you're going to take this donkey and her colt, say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. That use of the word Lord is not the word for God that we often see in our Bible when all the letters are capitalized, which is a, a way for us to know it's saying Yahweh or Jehovah. No, here... This is a self-designation. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord Messiah. He's actually saying, I'm the second Adam. I'm the one who will take Adam's place. And I have lordship even over animals. And all of this took place to fulfill scripture. Scriptures that everybody in Jerusalem would have been familiar, familiar with. Jesus is really teaching and confronting, but ultimately what he's asking of that crowd over 2,000 years ago and what he's asking of you and me is you've got to make a decision about what I'm saying and doing here today. And so does everybody in this room. And so does everybody tuning in online. You see, over 2,000 years ago, Israel was looking for the Messiah. And can I say, to get it a bit modern, Israel of today is still looking for a Messiah. They're still looking for a conquering hero, a triumphal leader to free them from the tyranny of the nations around them. And that day was Rome and this day. And you know what? Everybody here and everybody out there is looking for a hero. Everybody's looking for a deliverer. And we all want 
the king in shining armor. We all want a knight. We all want a prince. We all want someone to come and rescue us. And yet here comes Jesus, meek, lowly, humble. He's not filled with armor. He's got a tunic that's only got the one hole in it. He's on a donkey. Actually, he's not even on a grown donkey. He's on a colt. They were looking for almighty God. And Jesus says, I come to you as a suffering servant. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Who would look upon him? We often, in today's pictures, if you look at the paintings of Jesus, we almost want to paint Jesus as if we'd all be drawn to him. But you realize, right, back in his day, he was so plain and ordinary. The common thought of the culture was, are you kidding me? He can't be the Messiah. That's Israel's response. That's the response of too many in 2022. But now, let's understand this. Why is this happening? Because number two, Jesus' triumphal entry, it was well attended, but it was grossly misunderstood. It was well attended, but it was grossly misunderstood. Look at our passage. Disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he, Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd as well spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut down these branches. We assume they were palm branches from the trees, because that's the most common indigenous tree. They spread them on the ground, and the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what happens? The disciples obeyed. And a procession begins. And I find this fascinating because there was no social media. There's no Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. There was no, you know, Facebook group, March with Jesus today. It wasn't the Jerusalem March with Jesus. And then, you know, hashtag March and all this kind of stuff. It was just word of mouth. It was simply a, a word of mouth, overwhelming idea. But you remember, it was only days ago... That quite literally, I think probably the greatest miracle of all that happened in human highs when a dead man who has been dead for four days is called out of a grave with all of his wrappings around him. I mean, Jesus actually had the first mummy come forth. I mean, and it was real and legit. But this time they unwrapped him and he was a human being. Not the zombies you see in our modern Hollywood. Jesus is quite literally famous and infamous all at the same time. So the disciples in humility, and probably because they're thinking, all right, he's not on a horse, he doesn't have a sword, but we know he can raise people from the dead, we know he can calm the waters, we know demons are afraid of him, so maybe he's just going to march in, march up to the fortress of Antonia, tell whoever's there, I've arrived, leave, and they're all going to leave. So they, they humility put their cloaks on them and all this, and the people come. And by the way, don't miss this. Their cloaks was likely the most expensive piece of clothing they owned. It wasn't some random thing. This was likely the thing that they owned. And now we hear the crowd. This is the crowd. 
They have come from, where did they come from this crowd? Well, remember, it is Passover. Passover, the Day of Atonement is only a week away. The most holy event in the Jewish calendar is coming. And scholars tell us that the population of Jerusalem was probably around 70,000 people. But during Passover week, it would swell to a quarter of a million. 250,000, which by the way, is the size of the general St. John's area. That's what it was. So this crowd, they're praising and singing, is likely largely made up of people from Galilee. So they are well known and well familiar with the escapades of Jesus. They throw down their garments, men, women, and children. They go and get branches and start singing and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They're made up of all kinds of people. Poor, rich, middle class. It's country folk and city folk. People who knew Jesus and people who were just curious. It's the nature of a mob. There was religious people there and regular people. And trust me when I tell you, every one of them there had an opinion on who Jesus was and what was his purpose. And then they cry out, Hosanna! Now, do any of you even really know what that word means? It means a word we all throw around in churchy world that we have. But do you actually know what it realized? Do you know what you're saying when you yell out or sing it? How often do we do things, even in this church, without engaging our mind and heart as to what we're actually doing and why we're doing it? Here comes Jesus. And they start singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're caught up in the moment, and they use the word because it feels right. I thought it was the best thing to do. Jesus is coming. Hosanna. But in fact, Jesus was on his way to a cross. He was not going to a throne. In fact, the whole setup is wrong, actually. You wouldn't enter Jerusalem victoriously on a donkey without an army, without your prisoners of war. Here's a crowd screaming and yelling out with Romans looking on, I might add. Is it any wonder that the religious leaders say what they do? Because if you remember in Luke, they tell Jesus, shut this crowd up. But let me go back to that word, Hosanna. Do you know what that word is? It's a word of praise. And you know what it means? God, save us now. Hosanna, God, save us now. They're quoting Psalm 118, which was part of the Jewish songs of ascent in the book of Psalms. Hosanna in the highest, by the way, was meant to call angels to sing. So it's the whole humanity. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They're actually saying, angels, join us in praise. What a joyous and amazing scene. Cries of Hosanna, praise, worship, and glory. But what did the crowd actually want? You think they truly understood what Jesus was doing? And the answer is, of course not. Oh, they proclaimed their belief, but it was incomplete. They called him son of David, but it says they saw him as only a prophet. 
They proclaimed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they didn't recognize that it was the Lord himself who had come. The crowd wanted a savior from the Romans. They didn't think they needed a savior from their sin. In essence, they wanted, are you ready for this? And if you're writing notes, write this down. They wanted to control God. And welcome to the 21st century in Canada. We all have gods of our own making. And if we're being honest, we want to control our God. Yes, they wanted a savior on their terms, who met their perceived needs, who acted according to their timing. And here's the problem with that. Are you ready for this? No God exists who will simply do what you want. Let me say that again. There doesn't exist a God who will simply do what you want. And you know what happens, church, when you try to create a God like you want? Because you will never create one that will live up to your expectations. And you know what happens when your God doesn't live up to your expectations? Look no further than a week later. On Friday, many in this crowd that had said, Hosanna, whether they were caught up in the mob or not, were the same people that would say, crucify him. Crucify him. These same disciples would abandon him. The religious leaders would demand his death and the crowd would follow the leader. Their faith was short-lived and superficial because Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations. They not only didn't understand, but they wouldn't listen to why he had come. And instead, the number one emotion that I think leads our planet today. In fact, I've been fascinated by this in 2022. As I've been reading through my Bible, I can trace everything that we deal with and struggle with in hum as human beings. I think we can all trace it back to this one controlling emotion. I believe pride is what drives us, but I think fear is what controls us. Hence why the number one most often repeated thing of the Bible is do not be afraid. Because we are so often driven and controlled by our fear, the power of the world, the need for pleasure and ease. It took over. The path of least resistance will always rent the day unless you really believe in who Jesus is. They would choose a murderer over the Savior. And that should remind you, by the way, of Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus explains how the gospel is thrown out and some of it lands on the, on the path and Satan comes and takes it away. Some lands on the stony ground and some lands on the shallow ground. And remember what happens? Some hear it and they're like, oh, I like it. And then it says, but then persecution comes and they wither. And then... That on the shallow ground, they, they, they go, I want this Jesus. But then they realize, oh, but Jesus isn't going to give me worldly treasures and all the fancies of my life. And they're like, no, no, no. Then I don't, I don't want that type of Jesus. I signed up for good Jesus. Money in my bank account, Jesus. I signed up for I'm going to be healthy, Jesus. I'm going to sign up for I can find a mate and get married, Jesus. I want to sign up for good marriage, Jesus. I want to sign up for I don't lose a loved one or I don't go through pain or friends don't fail me or life's not hard. By the way, 
Tonight, we will gather with the good folks at Elam and pray and sing and cry out over the Ukraine and the war in Russia. We are fascinated by the videos that we've seen of Ukrainian Christians worshiping in subway stations and bomb shelters and around tables as they share a last meal and know they're going to die. And yet, if someone offends us over here, even in the church, we're like, I'm out, I'm done. Are we guilty? See, it's easy to sing Hosanna, son of David, when the crowd's with you. But will you sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me when they're lighting the wood around your feet and they think they're doing God a favor? When Jesus was announced back in Matthew chapter 1, the angel told Joseph that he would name him Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sin. You see, Jesus came in Palm Sunday, entered into Jerusalem on that lowly colt, not to free us from Rome or to give us pleasure, but to free us from an even greater enemy, our sin. And neither your religion or your church name, or your family, or your good deeds, or whatever it is you trust in, will save you from your sin. Only trusting Jesus. Too many people in the modern world who think that their life is all about themselves. It's my life. Sorry, teenagers. It's often what a teenager screams at some point to their parents. It's my life. It's my decision. I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. I've heard many a patient diagnosed with cancer say, why is this happening to me? We often forget that our lives are not just about ourselves. Too many of us, and even those of us who profess to be Christians, we actually agree with the uh, 1980s and 90s rock singer Bon Jovi. Remember his song, It's My Life? Everybody loves a lot of people. That was a popular song. Have you ever read the lyrics? Do yourselves a favor for the next time you like a song. Maybe it'll help kill you, but read the lyrics of the song you like. Here's what he says. It's my life and it's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. My heart is like an open highway. Like Frankie said, I did it my way. I just want to live while I'm alive because it's my life. There's his anthem. All I got is now. This is all I got. Our lives. Listen to me, church. Your life has something to do with everyone around you. You are not an island of yourself. Every life matters. And we are interconnected with our friends and our family, our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, our neighbors, our coworkers, our acquaintances, and yes, even our enemies. No one's life is all about me or you or him or her. Self-centeredness, selfishness is part of a sinful human nature. And it can easily turn us in on ourselves. It can turn us from each other and from the truth. And the truth is that my life is not about me. My life is about Jesus Christ. 
Your life is not about you. It's about the one who lived and died for you. It's about what he will do in your life, for your life, and through your life. Do you want to have peace and calm and assurance and meaning and value? Then you've got to look to Jesus on his terms because his terms are better than any set of terms you can imagine or write up. Jesus entered Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You know why? To redeem us. He brought us back. In fact, let me say this. He actually purchased us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, You are not your own. You are bought at a price. The life you live right now as a Christian, or the life you can live if you will trust in Jesus, Jesus paid for it. He paid for its sins. He's earned its blessings. That's what it means to be a disciple, a follower, a Christian, a lamb, a sheep of the good shepherd. That's a perspective that's important for you to maintain. You see, folks, too many of us want Jesus for the wrong reason. Let me say it again. Too many of us want Jesus for the wrong reason. But it was Jesus himself who said, what does it profit a man or a woman if he or she gains the whole world but loses or forfeits? I love that translation. The word forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man or woman give in return for their souls? Friends, your greatest need and mine is not a good physical life. Our greatest need is that our souls would be right with God. You see, Jesus came to die for my sin and yours because that's our greatest need. That's why he entered Jerusalem that day. And finally, the triumphal entry demands you answer this question. What will you do with Jesus? From the youngest of you here to the oldest, if you're male or female, it doesn't matter who you are, how you identify, what your age is, what your purpose is. The, the, the whole purpose of the gospel, the whole purpose of Easter is to make every human being answer this question. What are you going to do with Jesus? And you only have two options. Believe or reject. Reject. Look at the end of our passage. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Do you realize this is the second time in 20 chapters that Matthew tells us this? In Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men showed up and that entourage of wise men came from the east, the whole city was stirred and they were afraid. This is the second time that Jesus has come to Jerusalem and the entire city is, who, who is this? And the answer was, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And you see, this crowd is made up of different groups. Many know who Jesus is, many don't. But the effect is the same. What's the fuss about? Who is this guy? And you'll notice they said he's a prophet. He's someone special. Now think about it. From those of you that are here from Newfoundland and those that are you are here from other countries in the world that have moved here, this is the great debate about what to do with Jesus. He's a good guy. 
Even Gandhi said, I love the teachings of Jesus. I just can't take his followers. Even one of the very first presidents of the United States actually formed a Bible because he actually believed that only the red letters were the actual Jesus. He didn't believe the whole Bible was God's word. He just wanted the words of Jesus and the Gospels. So he created his own version. You can't do that. When you see the answer, you see folks saw him as a prophet, but the word of God says he's the suffering savior coming to deal with our sin. And because of that, it demands a response. None of you can sit here and be neutral. If Jesus is the conquering hero, then we see him from what we can get. He's nothing more than like the genie in Aladdin. We're all looking, and I believe there's a rock song to that. We're just looking for a genie in a bottle. But he comes instead as the suffering Messiah. He comes instead to atone for our sin. And then, if that's true, the only response is to be crushed with humility. Do you remember back earlier when Matthew tells us about this Pharisee and this publican that was at the temple and the Pharisee prays and says, oh God, I thank you, I'm not like this guy. And before you get all judgmental, how often have you walked by one of the panhandlers at one of our intersections and went, I thank God I'm not him. It's not that I think anybody in here thinks they're perfect, but every one of us in here is guilty of being self-righteous and comparing ourselves. And yet it was that tax collector who beat his chest and wouldn't even look. He was too humble to even look to heaven. He beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the one who went home justified. You remember the thief on the cross? His only plea was, remember me? Because he was already guilty. He was hanging there guilty. There was no excuses to offer. He couldn't say, Jesus, you don't understand my childhood. You could, he couldn't say, Jesus, I made one mistake and ended up here. All he could say was, remember me? And yet how often are we guilty of going to Jesus with, Lord, I need you, but I'm not that bad. You see, young people, especially in this crazy world, I want to ask you, you are going to have to wrestle with, is there a God? And has God revealed himself? And if he did, did he reveal himself in Jesus? And if that's true, did the death of Jesus on the cross do anything for anybody? And if that's right, then did Jesus rise from the dead? And if you answer yes to all of those questions, how can we not believe him? And how you answer these questions make all the difference in the world. It's true that over 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he fulfilled this prophecy that began all the way back, believe it or not, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And you can trace it all through the Bible. A Bible that's written by over 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,500 years with over 334 prophecies that were made about Jesus over 700 years before he was born, right down to his name, place of birth, and how he would live, and that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And every one of them is fulfilled. 
You can't come up with a mathematical equation for that. But God loves you so much that he did all of that. He sent his only son to die for your sin and mine. Why? Not so we can have a good life, but better than that, so you and I can be right with God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And I love this. By his wounds, you have been healed. For us as Christians, can I ask you this morning, because I know I'm speaking to a predominantly Christian audience, does Jesus and the gospel excite you as much today as it has in the past? Why should you and I really concentrate on Jesus, not just today, but every day? Because it'll make you a stronger Christian. You'll see your own weaknesses, and you'll admit you need Jesus every day. You will see how much Jesus loves you and that love will draw the best out of you and give you the strength for your best. You will worship more from your heart with God as your only thought. You'll have more of an intimate relationship with Jesus. But you know what the problem is? Too many North American Christians, we like the Bible, but we're too busy to actually read it. Jeff Morin says the survey makes it clear that a lot of people wish they read the Bible, but wishing, as you know, doesn't make it so. You see, the heart of Palm Sunday, the heart of this passage is Jesus Christ. It's the path of a humble Savior as he rode in on the majesty and lowly pomp as he went on to suffer and die for our sins. So let me ask you this morning, maybe the problem isn't is Jesus too big? But maybe the problem or the question is, is your Jesus too small? Are you trying to cling to a friend or a helper? Is Jesus a little more than your butler? Or do you and I run and hide and cry out to and pray to and sing to and worship and depend on and love the Savior who is the Lord of all? And so today... As we remember why Jesus came in the first place, Tim Keller put it so well. He said, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And I love this. But you're more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. Our lives are actually not only for Jesus, but it's about his kingdom. Your life means you may not be the main character of your life, but you and I and all of us who will believe are the ones who benefit the most from Christ's work. Be exalted, O Lord, be exalted. And by the way, Jesus came and did that, not because he had to, and not because you're lovable, not because you're even worth it, not because we can give him anything. He did it just because he is love. His enemies, you and I, who rejected him and his son, you and I, though we do wrong even when we try to do it right, you and I, if we will but believe in, trust in, lean on, hope in, depend on, Jesus Christ is our all in all. And Christians, you need to remember that God who loves us without cause and who needs nothing from us is most pleased with us when we are most satisfied with him. 
It's our grace and our peace. Do you actually know what Zechariah says? In Zechariah 9, the, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? God. Jehovah says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So as I finish, let me read this prayer from Scotty Smith. He prays, Lord Jesus, we'll exhaust the glory of this passage when Niagara Falls reverses course. When the sun turns into a giant snowman and elephants break dance. Who is it that fulfills Zachariah's magnificent vision? It is you, King Jesus. And we welcome you and rejoice in you on this Palm Sunday. The first word of the Holy Week was Hosanna. And the next word was crucify him. But the final word was and is. He is risen. So no other king could vanquish war horses and warriors riding the foal of a donkey. And no other king could break the battle bow and backbone of warfare by the brokenness of the cross. And no other king could replace the dominion of darkness and the tyranny of evil with an eternal reign of grace and peace. And no other king would give his life and death for the redemption of rebels and idolaters like us. No other king can possibly make slaves of sin into prisoners of hope. Lord Jesus, you are that king. The king of glory. The monarch of mercy, the governor of grace, the prince of peace, the king of kings, and lord of lords. And great is our rejoicing because grace is our salvation. You have come to us and for us, righteous and victorious, loving and sovereign. And so by the riches of your grace, continue to free us from waterless pits, broken cisterns, and worthless idols. By the power of the gospel, enable us to live as prisoners of hope and agents of redemption until the day you return to finish making all things new. So very amen we pray in your holy and matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.